0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks, dating back to 1996. We have we, we know we go around introduce ourselves. Okay. okay. I am Hao again. Tom. Tom. Tom.
1: Alan. Dennis. Steve. Paul. Flint, Terry. Marty. Jim. Jim.
2: Steve. Robin. Dexter. Jack, Adrian. Adrian,
0: my name is Bob, ben. ben, Peter, Paul,
2: Bill, Marvin, a
0: Paul, John, Lee, Ron,
1: Larry, Lou, Tom, Mark.
0: Okay. Thank you, and David, just to <laughs> okay, I guess I just turn over to Jim Webb. Thank
3: you. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be down here again. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful uh, spring morning. I think last month it was raining, if I remember correctly. So for those of you who are new here, I uh, always begin my talks with some music. like um, to talk today about um, uh, ignorance okay. so <laughs> and uh, one of the uh, the approaches of the Buddha uh, Buddha means the awakened one and part of the meaning of the awakened one was that he perceived and understood things clearly right. so at various times in the Buddha's teachings he would, Uh, Speak about common mistakes, common misunderstandings that people have about uh, existence and about ourselves. uh, And then he would use these to um, elucidate a clearer understanding. This kind of uh, ignorance that the Buddha addressed was, is not ignorance like about a, a particular topic, like, Like, I'm ignorant about calculus. I tried, but it didn't work. (laughs) Or it's not, uh, say, ignorance about, you know, macroeconomic theory, something like that. It's uh, ignorance about um, how the world actually works. You know, like, you could say the the true nature of the world. So, uh, And this kind of ignorance is rooted in a habit of mind, uh, deeply ingrained habits that we have. So the removal of this ignorance, because it is based on a habit of mind, requires some um, consideration and some contemplation on our part because it tends to run against our... um, the habits that we have had. The Buddha would have said habits that we've had since beginning this time. Like, uh, over many, many, many lives. And so very, very strong. Um, if you don't feel comfortable viewing this from a reincarnational perspective, you can think of these habits as deeply rooted in our, uh, like mammalian nature. You know, like some deep, very, uh, very deep habits. So deep that we are hardly aware that we, um, Perceive things and understand things from that perspective. All right. I'd just like to touch on three that the Buddha brought up uh, quite often in his discourses. Oh. Just touching on them for your consideration. One, uh, one is um, mistaking the impermanent for the permanent. Okay. So that's mistaking the permanent for the impermanent. So that's a, the the Buddha would often say that people uh, make this mistake. They think that they think that the impermanent is permanent, and that is a cause of suffering. I like the second one is mistaking not self for self. And so, I like, um, and I'll go into each one of these uh, in a little bit more detail. And the third one that I'd like to discuss is mistaking the dependent for the independent. Okay. So, that's a big one for our culture. <laughs> As, uh, we're, uh, American culture is very uh, strongly, um, rooted in the idea of independence. It's very, very, very strong. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, when Americans counter Buddhism, this is a, uh, a subtext for a lot of conflict. There are a lot of difficulty in approaching the Dharma. So. The first, the first one is mistaking the impermanent for the permanent. And so. You know, everything changes. Everything is in process. I, I refer to existence as a rivering world. Yeah. we have heard me say this before. This rivering world. So, given that that is true, why is it so difficult for us to understand that everything is constantly changing and impermanent? It's it's because the manifestation of things doesn't clearly exhibit change like that. It's not obvious. Like, so, like this room appears to me to be the same room as the room I was in last month. Right. So, I mean that—that that is its appearance. That appearance is deceptive, and this is this is where the Buddha would often talk about the illusory nature of existence or the deceptive nature of existence. This is what he's referring to: that things appear to be um, solid and unchanging, or they often have that appearance. Because they have that appearance, we build up an expectation that they will maintain. You know, that they have that nature, that they will endure. You know, like. But that is not the case. This room did not used to be here. Now it is here. Someday this room will not be here. You know, like. so, but because our experience does not constantly reinforce that understanding, it takes um, some consideration. You know, like uh, I call it unpacking the meaning of impermanence like some consideration on our part to really contemplate um, the impermanent nature of things. So that would be the impermanent nature of sensory objects. Sensory objects are impermanent. So visual objects are impermanent. Auditory objects are impermanent. We don't have much difficulty with auditory objects. That's okay. (laughs) Auditory objects are impermanent. Visual objects, objects of smell, objects we touch, objects we taste—all sensory objects are impermanent. Yeah, it's very interesting about the human mind when it gets hold of an idea and then it refers it to an experience. The reason I use the term "unpacking the meaning" is what i what I've observed is that people tend to sort of um, like, it's okay that sonic objects are impermanent, and it's okay that taste objects are impermanent, but at a certain point, you know, like, they stop. Right? They, won't, they won't carry out the meaning of impermanence, or, you know, follow what I call follow through on it. You know, like, so, that's why some, uh, some meticulousness or contemplating it, you know, like, in some detail, it can be very uh, helpful to one's practice. Because then it brings up into one's consciousness where is it that we really dislike impermanence? I had a <laughs> I had a student who uh, who was getting um, um, criticized severely by her boss. Right? So uh, up into her mind rose, everything is impermanent. Now it would be good. <laughs> 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 so, you know, like, at certain, at certain times, impermanence is okay, you know, like, I mean, we might even, you know, like, encourage. <laughs> but it's, in, it's important to, uh, like I say, unpack the meaning of impermanence to become aware, you know, like, just where it is that we resist that idea. You know? So, and ideas are impermanent as well. You know, like, we... And this is where human beings get, my observation is that this is where human beings get really sticky. You know, like that, you know, like you can, it's where, it's ideas where people really, really resist the idea of impermanence. So, sometimes I, I have a psychological model of this spiritual quest. It's, uh, it probably doesn't apply to everybody, but, you know, it's like, at a certain age a person becomes aware that what they could rely on is shifting you know it's changing or vanishing you know, like so maybe it's one's parents maybe it's a political commitment that we had you know like that didn't pan out the way we thought it would you know like or something something like that and then there's this kind of quest the person is launched on a quest to find something that is reliable, you know, like to sort of fill in that space. You know? And so the irony is that there is something which is completely reliable, and that is that everything will change. You know, so I feel like, <laughs> but, but there's sort of um, what I've observed in a lot of people is that there'll be a shift from. Say something more mundane and worldly to the idea realm. You know, like that one will stake one's claim for permanence in the realm of ideas. You know, like that. um, Okay, you know, like I may be impermanent, my friends may be impermanent, the city may be impermanent, but you know, like um, certain ethical principles are true for all time. Or certain mathematical principles are true for all time, or certain scientific principles are true for all time. I think this is what makes that kind of activity so attractive to a certain kind of person. It's like you know, it's like I'm now entering this realm, you know, like that is not subject to the vagaries of uh, of the mundane world. But you know, you, you really have to examine this too, because ideas are also impermanent. You know, like. If you know, like, if you look at the history of science, for example, scientific principles change over time, radically change. So, think of what the ancient Greeks thought of as an atom. The word "atom" means indivisible. Okay, that's that's what the Greek word means, not dividable. <laughs> It is <laughs> I mean, even in the last fifty years, the nature of the atom you know, like and how we describe it has, you know like gone under tremendous radical change, or like ra- radically different descriptions you know, like so um, there, in Western culture, many uh, people have staked their claim for permanence in the realm of mathematics, and so are there any mathematicians in the audience? No so then I won't dwell very long on this, but it's been, mathematics has been held up as the model for how reality actually is, you know, like for many, many centuries Euclid's geometry was considered that's how existence really is, you know, had a tremendous influence on the West, still does, you know, like The influence was so powerful that philosophers would try and write their treatises using a geometrical model, you know, like axiom, thesis, deduction, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, like, that's why it was so shocking late in the last century when mathematical models were produced that did not have a Euclidean basis. Am I losing people here a, a little bit? The the point is, uh, let me pick a simpler example. Numbers have a history. Right? Numbers have a history. Mathematical statements have a history. We even know the history of many numbers, you know, like and who invented them, and who created them, you know, like. So my point is that even in the realm of numbers and mathematics, you are dealing with change and impermanence, you know, like. So, it you know like where. In your own consciousness, does the idea of impermanence bother you? You know, like, for many Westerners it would be in the realm of mathematics. For many Westerners it would be God. You know, like the idea of God but uh, god is impermanent. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, what do you mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a there's a wonderful sutra I uh, I think it's called the Brahma Brahma Jala sutra. You know like where the Buddha discusses this very idea of uh, of uh, the impermanence of deity, you know. So um so that, that you know like I mean you know like really really follow that out. You know like Particularly in the idea realm, you know, like uh, because that's where human beings get very, very clingy. So it's like, you know, like um, they get human beings get so uh, uh, the clinging gets so intense in the mental realm that people are willing to die for their ideas. You know, they're willing to die for ideas. Not only are they willing to die for their ideas, they're willing to kill others for their ideas. So, <laughs> well.
2: In in the nature, I mean, in the realm of mathematics and thought, though, even if one could postulate that uh, certain principles are fundamental and and, and in some sense permanent, their contemplation depends on the human mind, as far as we know. Right. And that's where it's given the lie, is that you can't, even if these ethical or Mathematical or, or theoretical models exist in some sense as a as a great description of some element you know, of reality. They depend on human being, Right. And that's what's there's the rub.
3: Right. And that's that's the third um, uh, example of ignorance that you know mistaking the independent for the dependent. I'm like so, they overlap. Um, uh, You know, the power of the human mind uh, to um, uh, force reality into its constructs is really uh, quite dramatic. And the example I like to use is borders between countries. And so you may have heard me uh, bring this up before, but it really is worth considering because this is another area where people get very clingy. That I grew up, you know, there was this uh, border between East and West Germany, right? And great nations were poised to destroy each other to maintain that division. You know, like, I mean, it was very, very intense, remember? You know, like, so I was a little kid. Cuban Missile, uh, not Cuban Missile Crisis, the Berlin Crisis, you know, all that, all the time growing up. Then, you know, like, uh, Human energy, you know, wasn't uh, interested in maintaining that division anymore, for, for whatever reason. The reason doesn't matter. The the border disappears. Where did that border come from? Where did it go? It came from the human mind. It came from the mind. It's mind dependent. So when you read in Buddhist texts that the whole whole world is mind dependent. You know, like think of an example like that. Think of a very ordinary example like that. You know, like uh, it isn't that difficult to understand if you can uh, bring your attention to to those kinds of examples. You know, like so. Now, I'm not saying that the border between East Germany and West Germany did not exist. It did exist, but it existed dependent upon our minds, right? Birds did not understand this. See, bird consciousness didn't understand it. Right? You know, like, you know, like uh, reptile consciousness didn't understand this. You know, like, probably bodhisattva consciousness didn't understand it either. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you know, it's dependent upon mind. You know, like, so, in in obs- in observing or in contemplating the mistaking of the impermanent for the permanent, the mind is the key observing that. And that's where meditation comes in, so important. You know, sitting in meditation you become familiar with the stream of consciousness, the stream of ideas, and how ephemeral that is, how insubstantial that is. When you really have a insight into that experience it becomes much more difficult to, um, to cling to those ideas in that kind of destructive way that human beings so often do.
1: Is it Jim? Yeah. Doesn't that... um, Can that be taken to an extreme where everything is conditional and there are no, no values that you can consider absolute values?
3: Um, yeah, it could be taken to that extreme, and um, but, to, but to say that there are no absolute values is not to say that there are no values. So the, the, the way out of that dilemma is to um, abandon the law of the excluded middle. <laughs> so, uh, to say that this room is impermanent is not to say that this room Does not exist. To say that ethical principles are not transcendental or eternal is not to say that ethical principles do not exist. Uh, Ethical principles do exist and they're, they're central to the Buddhist tradition. Uh, But ethical principles in the, in a Buddhist context arise out of, um, the conditions of, uh, uh, of the way that people interact, for example, in the Vinaya section of the Buddhist canon, you know, like people would come to the Buddha and they would say, "We are having a problem in our community." Or the the one I really uh, a very g- good story is um, why the Buddha prohibited alcohol consumption. You know? So you know, very early in his career, there were no rules. If you wanted to become a follower of the Buddha, you just tagged along. You know, like but uh, as his community got larger and larger. Um, the interaction between people created conflicts, as human beings do. Like, and they would come to the Buddha and they would say, "Well, like, you know, people drink and then they get loud. They don't pay attention to their neighbors. It's difficult to meditate. You know, when, and, and so, you know, this accumulated to a point, and the, then the Buddha prohibited alcohol consumption. Clouds the mind, makes people, um, you know, their behavior. oh, we all know. <laughs> so, but my point is that. Uh, the rules of the Buddhist community ar- arose out of context, you know, um, out of actual situations. Uh, in the Zen tradition, in uh, you know, which I'm immersed, they talk about how um, ethical principles can't encompass the complexity of existence. And it's not just ethical principles, it's words in general. You know, like So, if you have verbal, verbal formulas um, are abstractions, but all of our experiences are specific. Right? So, well. the generality of words makes it difficult, um, probably impossible, for them to apply to every single situation that appears. There's also a creative aspect to existence you know like the um such that new situations are always appearing that nobody ever thought of before like but our words are based on our memory uh, you know based on the past like so that uh it is likely that situations will appear in which um we are unprepared for and our words do not encompass it, it can even be simpler than that. So, you will know, take the first precept, do not kill. So, you know, you look out your window and someone is beating up the seven, seven year old child across the street. What do you do? You no? Know, like, I mean, you call the police or you go out. I mean, you know, you, you can, you can think of situations in which that precept would be highly problematic. You know, highly problematic. Pro- I mean, from an ethical point of view. You know, like, for example, if someone is beating up a seven-year-old child across the street and you refrain from interfering, then you, in an indirect way, may be causing harm to that seven-year-old child, even possibly the death of that seven-year-old child. So, you know, how does that fit into the precept? But the precept points to an attitude of mind that it is not necessary to go through the world with destructive intent. Now, many people do. Now, many people do. You know, like um I I will get rid of my enemies. That is my project for my life. <laughs> so, you know, like, so like that attitude of mind is not necessary. You know, like uh you know, like that that can be transcended. It's just that um well, am I addressing your question? Am I going on too long here? Yeah, no,
1: no I, I, I think so. It uh, uh, mm-hmm. is a kind of contextual thing. But sometimes the context can be very sweeping. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd mean, like to say that the act of compassion, uh, acting compassionately, mm-hmm. is, is an ethical principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, I mean, it, the yeah, opposite extreme would be everybody saying, "Well, you know, everything's conditional. If this person believes that acting compassionately is not within his moral code, I shouldn't condemn him for that. And he can go ahead and be a an son of a bitch, and it's not for to me to condemn him." Uh, so I, I mean, you know, I, I'm taking that to an extreme, but but it, it seems kind of like there has to be some kind of, if not absolute, at least closer to absolute, so, so that so that you you can you know, make value judgments.
3: Uh-huh. Well, um I would suggest that the the problem we're facing here is once again that either or logic you know that you know like the, that if something doesn't exist absolutely then it doesn't exist you know, and that doesn't follow things can exist to a degree you know, things can can um, can be more or less absolute <laughs> <You> know, like <laughs> uh, just um it's an inch. Take, take a more mundane example. So, if I say, um, uh, we're going to meet at the green house, I'm giving you directions. Right? Okay, so, and then you drive up, you know, and you find the green house. And then, uh, and then I arrive and you say, well, you know, the house isn't green. You know, like, and I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, it has white shutters. You know, like, and I say, well, you know, it's green except for the white shutters. You know? <laughs> it's mostly green. You know, like so. Uh, see, our words, our words are generalities. You know, like, and if people insist on using them as if they were um, absolutes, then then you create these conflicts. You know, like, I mean, there's no reason to have a conflict over the green house. You know, like, um, because you know, in ordinary speech, in the ordinary way we use them, is uh, to encompass a great many phenomena. Right? And ethical principles also <coughs> encompass a great many phenomena, a great many relationships. I mean I read the precepts as part of my regular practice almost every morning because they are my good Dharma friends. The the way they become the way they're my friends is that um let's say I um Feel anger rising. you know, then a little bell goes off in my mind here, you know, about the precept, you know, like the, you know, let go of anger, let go of hate, you know, like, and it reminds me of my direction, the direction I want to go, you know, like, and there's just that, that pause, which gives me a certain spaciousness, so that it's possible for me to redirect, you know, my course of action or, or something like that. So, um, do, does that, help? I mean, yeah. I, I guess we can't settle it here, but, uh. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. That's no. <laughs> relatively. Relatively. Okay. <laughs> uh, then there's, um, the second, um, uh, um misunderstanding that the Buddha frequently uh, addressed mm-hmm. was mistaking not self for self. Mistaking not self for self. Of course, this, in Buddhism, this gets really, um, interesting because ultimately the Buddha says there is no such thing as a self. You know, like, but when you read that, it's good to gloss what he meant is there is no such thing as an eternally existing, unchanging self. You know, like, so. you know from that point of view, um, you know, uh, it helps us to understand what the, what the Buddha meant. You know, like so, it's it's interesting about uh, what people feel uh, feel belongs to them. You know, like uh, frequently the Buddha would would talk about get letting go of I and mine, letting letting go of I and mine. You know, like so. For example, a, a good example of focus on this is one's breath, one's breath. So breathe, you know, breathing. that's uh, I breathe. You know, like. Actually, people don't very often say "my breath. They usually say my ideas." another example of, of how powerful ideas are. but you know, like but if you think about your breath, it doesn't belong to you. you know, it's the world which breathes you. Okay? all of existence is breathing you right now right now. It's not your private possession you know, like so or Returning to the realm of ideas, one of the ways of becoming less clingy in the realm of ideas is to think about where your ideas came from. So bring up an idea that you strongly identify with, then ask yourself where it came from. Where did you first hear about that? You know, okay? That idea is a gift from someone else. It's not your private possession. Somebody else transmitted that idea to you. So, you know, like ideas are kind of an energy that travel from person to person, but you know when they land in our brain, it's it's really uh, very fascinating to watch. You know how once we get an idea, we grab it; it's mine. <laughs> we and we uh, are fairly conscientious about forgetting who gave it to us. <laughs> like, like, so. Um, I think one of the reasons we're conscientious about it is that it's often embarrassing. It's usually like Time Magazine or you know, like or <laughs> something like that. But but seriously, it is a very con- uh, constructive um, contemplation to uh, just list maybe ten or a dozen ideas that are very important to you, and then in the next column, who you got that from. You know, like so you know like uh, so. Some people have a very extended sense of self. You know, like um, it, it might be their whole family, their nation, their race. You know, something, something like that. Their religion, like, and and they feel like personally uh, infringed upon uh, if they perceive any um, threat. You know, like to those those kinds of borders. You know. So. And other people, it's very, very, just a few things, just a few things, before, before the bristles go up, you know, like... So, if a separately existing self exists, and this is what we're talking about in a Buddhist context, that's what the word self means, separately existing self, where does it reside? Can you find it? No. It does not exist in the body. The body does not exist as a separately existing self. It does not exist as a separately existing self because it is dependent upon breath, food, our parents, endless help from countless people. (laughs) So so that doesn't exist as a separately existing self. Does it exist as our ideas? Do we have a separately existing self in the realm of ideas? All of our ideas came from someone else. They're gifted to us. You know, like so The separately existing self does not reside in the realm of ideas. You know? Does it exist in our emotions, you know, our, our predispositions, our emotional reactions? You know? Well, one, th- this is harder to observe. You know? But one thing that I found helpful was Thinking about families that I visited and how all of them have kind of an emotional um, commonality, you know, like that, that like a, a shared sense of humor, say, you know, like that. Then uh, try and imagine myself visiting my family, you know, like, and oh yeah, my emotional reactions are like my mother's, they are like my dad's, they are like my brothers, you know, like there's. There's this shared inheritance of emotional dispositions, very, very similar to um, my ideas. So emotions do not exist separately, are not a ground for a separately existing self either. It's not in the body, not in the ideas, not in our senses, not in our emotions. You know, the, the Buddhist conclusion is that there is no such thing as a separately existing self. Now, that does not mean that you do not exist. Okay. This is very similar to what I was talking to Clint about. You know, like, if you fall into that either or logic, that's what happens to people. They think that the Buddha was saying that you don't exist. You know, like, he was not saying that. He was saying that you do not exist as a separately existing self. Okay. So if you take a glass of water, and you look at that water, and it has the shape of the glass, and if the glass has a color, it has the color of the glass. So the shape of that water is dependent upon the glass, the color of that water is dependent upon the glass. The water does not exist as a separately existing thing. But that doesn't mean that the water does not exist. It means that it does not exist separately. This is a, it's a subtle distinction, but it is possible to understand this. It's possible to understand this. Okay. Uh, are there questions on this or comments? Or?
2: Yeah, yeah um, uh, I think it, it's axiomatic in Buddhism that he never talked about anything that didn't further one's uh, progress toward enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, I see all three of these as uh, methods, as practices. Mm -hmm. And to concern oneself with that sort of um, (coughs) vertigo feeling of no self, in a sense that, like when you said, that's the Buddhist conclusion, that there is no self. I don't think so, so much, that that's as important as what is your process as you approach these topics? What occurs to you? What, <laughs> are you able to let go of these, these clinging things that have clouded your mind through time? And where do you end up, that's for you to just dis-
3: discover. And you will discover yourself. You right. will discover all the I, I think your point is well taken. Uh, the reason I mentioned it is that, um when Westerners read books on Buddhism and they they come across that concept of no self, I was trying to introduce how that idea is reached. You know, like, but all of these investigations you know, like, are like are to bring about the cessation of suffering and the end of sorrow. You know, like, so mistaking the impermanent for the permanent is a source of suffering. You know. Deep source of suffering, probably the most common source of suffering: mistaking the <clears throat> impermanent for the permanent. Why? Because we expect something to remain constant, and it does not do so. This produces anxiety, frustration, disease—all you know, of those. You know, like, um, so it's good to contemplate or investigate. You know, like, and then, as you say, that process of investigation brings about a certain freedom and a lessening of suffering. Is that the what you, know, you were my, getting you know, at? My point is that mm-hmm.
2: going through this process of saying, I am aware now that this is impermanent. Now I'm aware that that is impermanent. Mm-hmm. Now I am aware. I am aware. I am aware. Right. And suddenly <coughs> I was aware of being aware. And that all things change. Your awareness of all things changing is you awakening. Right.
3: Thank you. I just have a few more minutes, so I'd, I'd like to move on to the um, the third one, which is mistaking the dependent for the independent. and you notice that these overlap you know, a lot. Um, so uh, the, the Buddha's great awakening uh, under the Bodhi tree thousands of years ago, like. I, I love the description of him sitting under this tree for days, and then seeing the morning star, you know, Venus, in the sky, and seeing that morning star, he had this great awakening. How perfect! How marvelous! Everything is just like this. But it raises the question about what did he see? Because of course he had seen the, you know, he'd seen the evening uh, morning star before. You know, like so what did he see that morning and when he would describe that experience which it's interesting that he did it on quite a few occasions you know, like what he saw was the complete um, interdependence of all things that he and the morning star were not separate you know, like and out of that experience that deep awareness and understanding that um, Buddhism blossomed and went forth. So mistaking the dependent for the independent is a way of approaching the Buddha's enlightenment experience. It seems that as we look around the world and as we go through our daily experiences that things exist independently, that they exist separately. They have that appearance, you know? and uh, the Buddha awakened to the reality that that is that that is a mistake. That that is not actually the case. So, you know? so how do we um, how do we approach this? You know? um, independence means separate, existing on its own terms. Other words are like intrinsically existing. You know? Those kinds of words, but if you take any object and you investigate it, you will find that it doesn't exist separately or independently. I Meaning, you'll know, start with yourself. I already talked about breath and food. Those are two very good ways of approaching one's dependent nature, the interrelationship that we have with all the rest of existence. Uh, like so, uh, one very good contemplation. That people can do in a lay life is every time you eat, you know, it's just uh, say a little grace or gata, you know, like that, um, you know, endless labors have brought this gift of food, of food to me. Without this food, I could not continue to exist, you know, like, and, uh, so I give endless thanks for this gift of food. Something like that. Something like that. Over time, over time that kind of practice will have an impact on you you know like it will make you aware you know like that the toast in the morning you know like the Engl- uh, the Danish you know like uh, whatever it does it crackers you know like uh, McDonald's <laughs> doesn't matter you know like the important thing is to move that awareness of one's relationship to the rest of existence into the foreground you know? So uh, you know, there's several Buddhist suttas on observation of breath. There's a there's an entire sutta devoted to med. Uh, I think it's called the Anapasati uh, Sutta, but um, where the Buddha describes uh, meditating on one's breath. And I think that one of the reasons that you know, like he spent a great deal of time describing that meditation is the breath isn't such a skillful means of understanding one's connectedness to the rest of existence. You know, it's like, you know, like, I breathe in, the whole world sustains me. I breathe out, the whole world sustains me. I breathe in, the whole world sustains me. You know, like, so, without the rest of existence, my existence would not be possible. Yeah. So. <clears throat> uh. I mean, you just don't know a lot of kinds
4: of worms again, here, you know. <clears throat> We've been talking about this here before. We talk about the enlightenment, the impermanence of being enlightened or not. I asked you one time that question, and you said, wow, that's a very sad question. You know? <laughs> and uh, But I never really got an answer. It is enlightenment impermanent? It means the Buddha had to go back and be enlightened again and again and again to keep this here mo- uh, going. Or was it once, you know, bingo, here I am, and I got it, and now I'm impermanent. Oh, I'm permanent. The teaching of Buddha is obviously impermanent, because it would disappear one day, but the truth of the teaching of Buddha is that impermanent. And that's why some kind of, because I can easily deal with things and ideas that are that things are permanent. To me, I am permanent. Not my body, not my my existence in this world, but there is an essence of me and everybody else in this room who are permanent. True nature, your true nature, whatever that is. Yes. and I don't know what that is and that's my search and in this lifetime you know and I use different tools to get to terms with that, I believe that the essence of love between two individuals are permanent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are certain things, but they don't cause me any suffering. You mm-hmm. mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yes they do. So uh, I still, is in a conflict with what you're saying. And at the same time, I understand what you're saying, but it's like it stays on a physical level. Because mm-hmm. when I die, then everything is gone, and I'm not interrelated to anything anymore because I'm somewhere else, mm-hmm. where that somewhere else is. So yeah, I just threw a lot of things out in the air, and I don't really know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. But. Well,
3: that's okay. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, um, I am not a fully realized Buddha. <laughs> so, so I will. <laughs> so I, oh, yeah. so I'm not going to uh, tell you what the, the Buddha's state of mind was. But I, personally, I believe that the Buddha was fully enlightened, fully enlightened, so once for so once and for all, that he transcended all clinging and all suffering. I believe him when he says in the suttas that I have, I have observed. Suffering as suffering, I have observed the cessation of suffering, and I have brought about the cessation of sorrow. You know? And you see, to me, the that it, the fountainhead of that experience is what made possible. Um, the, the spread of Buddhism, you know, like the attraction of Buddhism down through the centuries, you know, like that, without that experience of vast awakening, it, it makes no sense to me, you know. Like. But on your question about ultimacy, about, you know, whether there's something permanent or, or impermanent, you know, like in the Rice Seedling Sutra, the Buddha says, and I love this sutra, it's one of my favorites. In Pali, it's called Shalistamba, you know, the Rice Seedling Sutra. He says, those who see dependent origination, see the Buddha. Those who see dependent origination, see the Buddha. So, the central experience, the core experience of the Buddha was the interconnectedness of all things, which he called dependent origination. You know, like that everything exists dependently, or you could call it interdependent origination. You know, like, that transcends, you know, like like you said, the teachings of the Buddha are impermanent, but the truth of the Buddha is not, right? That's what he was getting at in that sutra. You know, like anyone who sees dependent origination, truly sees it, perceives it, you know, with their full heart and their full mind, they see the Buddha. You know, like, whether or not they are buddhists. You know, uh, you know like, if you, are you following me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, on the question of whether or not there is something ex- existing that is unchanging, or whether change itself is the transcendentally real, you know, um, I offer the following observation, that all of our explanations uh, of ultimacy are not ultimacy itself. You know They are next to ultimacy. This doesn't mean that I consider them you know, like pointless. You know, like, um, in fact, I consider them very valuable. It's like this. Some musicians play in a minor key. Some musicians play in a major key. Sonic space allows for major and minor keys. Um, some mathematicians use Euclidean geometries. Some mathematicians use a different form of geometry. Space itself allows for those descriptions. The ultimately real, the transcendental, can be described as permanent, or it can be described as process. The ultimately real allows for both those descriptions. And both those descriptions have value. Inter- interestingly enough, in the history of Buddhism, you'll find both you know, existing side-by-side. Side. So So, that from which all concepts come is not itself a concept. That's why I say all our explanations are next to that ultimately real. And yet, words themselves are luminously clear, you know, like so. Uh, so they're also valuable. The, is that helpful or, or Okay. Yeah, it's time. I know. Can
0: I, Can I say something Please. about this? What you just said. Personally, I I don't think it's necessary for me to question what is really important and wherever it is. Is it impermanent or you, or how they relate with inseparable, with right? everyone relate to each other? Like you just said, maybe you had a train to what caused this, what caused it? No. I'm not going to reach unconsciously to the end and to start my life, but I'm using this philosophy to make me, to help me, to dealing with the situation that begins to bother me, begins to make me suffer, I'm able to accept that. by recognizing this environment. By recognize, I can't destroy this, because it is not just separate, it is related, related to me. Environment, for example connected? To stop me right there, to destroy that. Or to make it easy to accept that thing I'm suffering at that moment. By thinking about this depression. don't me, my loved one, I love this person so, so bad, I couldn't get that. But at the same time, I couldn't get him. He caused me suffering. I even can recognize this impermanent. I never let go easier. That's why I give that statement, philosophy, or add a related situation to comfort my daily situation. I'm never asking for why, for the But working on I me, mean, that's my I take
3: Thank you very much everybody. I hope that we all awaken uh, and soon attain enlightenment and save all sentient beings from suffering. Thank
2: Thank
0: Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.